0: Welcome to our Market Narratives series. I'm Julia Newbold, Managing Editor at Connexus Financial. Today I'm talking to Richard Bullock, Newton Investment Management Senior Geopolitical Strategist. Newton Investment Management is a global investment management subsidiary of BNY Mellon Investment Management based in London. Today we're talking about geopolitical issues. Richard, as a geopolitical strategist, today's environment must seem like one you've been preparing for your whole career. We have war, a change in world order, a move towards a global energy transition, and the emergence of a new financial system across various economies. It's difficult to know where to focus first in this great time of change, but let's start with the one most of the news bulletins continue to focus on the Russia Ukraine war. It's now well past the five month mark. And perhaps it's been going longer than many of us expected. Richard, how has our thinking and actions changed during this time? And what does the ongoing war mean for investment markets and world economies?
1: Indeed, the world faces more crises and challenges than it has done in a long time, uh, including the pandemic, supply chain disruption, inflation and the war in Ukraine. Um, And clearly, very few people, if any, expected at the start of the year that, that Russia would invade um, another European sovereign country, um, but if, if that was a surprise, um, I think the next big surprise is how coordinated the Western response has been um, in terms of support for for the Ukraine, for Zelensky, its leader, um, for imposing sanctions on Russia, and for uh, you know the, the NATO um, collaboration um, and cooperation, which has led to you know new members uh, even. You know jo- joining NATO or in the process of joining um, so I think no one expected that clearly the thinking around um, the European economy has has also changed uh, over the last six months because the events in Ukraine have have led to or are in the process of leading to quite a large energy shock um, and and so that's something that um, investors and markets are preparing for um, and, and I think that there's quite a high probability that the war uh, in Ukraine continues for quite some time um and Russia's foreign minister Lavrov um recently said that that Russia's war aims have expanded um and and immediately you know after Russia invaded in in February this year um and and they t- went to the outskirts of Kiev and then um retreated back to the Donbas uh, you know, it looked like they would would settle in and and just focus on that area. But more recently, um, it looks like their uh, intent to push on as far west as they can um, across the the seaboard in southern Ukraine to to try and take Odessa and effectively um, block off um, Ukraine from having maritime access to the Black Sea. That that would seem to be their ultimate um, war objective. Um, so I I think that suggests that this um, conflict is likely to persist for quite, quite a while longer. Um, and another way to really um, view the events is to to perhaps through Russia's lens or through, through the prism that Russia looks at this, to, to think that this is really a war with Europe because Europe is providing so much support militarily um, to the Ukraine. Um, and the, the more they do that, the, you know, the, the higher the cost that's being imposed on Russia, and, and the way that Russia can respond to that is through, through its gas uh, uh, tool and gas supplies. So we've seen the North Stream 1, the, the main supply line uh, pro- uh, providing uh, Russian gas to Europe, running now at 20% capacity um, and, and likely to stay low now into the winter so that Russia can really leverage this gas tool over the winter months um, and, and stop the Europeans filling their inventories up ahead of winter um, and so i think this is um this is something that, that the markets will focus on in the coming months more closely is the the um the, the energy security crisis that's facing europe and the impact that that's likely to have on industrial production uh, as you know possibly um gas supplies get get rationed to the um european industrial sectors um so you know that that's uh, something that the market will focus on and, and clearly something that No one expected at the start of the year uh, that the European economy would be embroiled in in a war in in the way that it has become.
0: The war has obviously changed the global world order with what you term autocrats versus Democrats. Can you please explain a little on why this matters and how this affects those of us in the West?
1: Yeah, so one of the clear fallouts from the Russia-Ukraine war uh, that we're seeing at the moment Uh, and that I think we'll continue to see for for coming months and years, is this um, almost decoupling or separation into rival camps between democratic countries and autocratic countries. Let me just expand a little bit on that. So clearly, as I mentioned, um, the the war in Ukraine has led to the democratic countries being a lot more um, cohesive and cooperating more um, in terms of security, energy policy, um, sanctions on Russia. Um, but also the the autocratic countries that they're sitting up and taking notice of how um, Russia's been targeted with sanctions with its financial system being cut off from from the global financial system. Um, and I think the autocratic countries, clearly they're very much still prepared to um, to deal with and and trade with Russia. Um, the Chinese, the Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, et cetera. Um, so I, I think we're getting um, a pattern emerging in, in the coming years of, of these two two camps. Now, I'm not suggesting that they become fully polarized um, like during the original Cold War where they don't trade with each other. Uh, but my my thesis around this is that they'll drift apart and you'll see more confidence building amongst the respective members of the democratic camp and the autocratic camp which means that they're more prepared to trade with each other invest in each other's economies etc and and um, really accept each other's currencies in their own um, exchange reserves for example
0: so discussions about China brings things a little closer to home for Australian investors. What should we be watching out for when it comes to China and how might the new Australian Albanese government's foreign policy affect our relationship?
1: Yeah, but um, before I talk about um, Australia-China foreign policy, just a quick word on um, Taiwan I think is really um, valid at this juncture because um, a lot of people are looking at china taiwan uh, thinking that perhaps there's a, an analogue from Russia Ukraine um, that that maybe um, the events in Eastern Europe could tempt China to to invade Taiwan. So my my thinking on this and, and clearly right now is a very sensitive time um, given um, all the speculation around um, House Speaker Pelosi possibly visiting Taiwan. Her intended trip there would come at a very sensitive time for for uh, for China, g- given that they're um, facing you know their political. Calendar with the 20th Party Congress happening later this year. Um, so, the the question here is, you know, w- would events in Ukraine um, discourage or encourage China? And I, I personally feel that they're probably more discouraging in the near term because you look at how the Western response has been in terms of sanctioning Russia. Um, you you look at how um, Russia's economy has been de facto. Decoupled from from uh, from the Western economies, um, save for you know the remaining commodity trade, um, and and you you look at the cost that that's imposed upon the Russian economy, forecasts for something like 10 to 15 percent shrinkage in Russian GDP. So I really think um, Ch- China is um, is looking at this and and wants to preserve trade with with the West for as long as possible. Um, Realises that the uh, the Damage of decoupling, excuse me, of decoupling from from the West would be would be too costly for its economy right now, uh, and this happens at a time that China is obviously facing very um, very severe domestic economic challenges with its real estate sector um, and with its COVID zero policy, which has curtailed a lot of activity in China. Um, so I don't believe that. Um, China is gonna be looking at Ukraine and and deciding to make an imminent um, move to, to try and seize Taiwan. Yeah, so turning to the China-Australia relationship, um, you know, clearly the relationship has deteriorated quite significantly um, since around 2020 under the Morrison government. Um, But I think any change of government, um, obviously now with the new Albanese government in Australia, provides the opportunity for a reappraisal of relations, um, even if not a complete reset. Um, So I think Albanese will will look to soften tensions, uh, but will not concede on core principles and values. Um, And this is also the message that the new Australian foreign minister, Penny Wong, uh, gave in a recent interview. Um, So I think uh, China-Australia relationship will likely remain strained but perhaps with more potential for for dialogue Um, and and so some things to watch for in the relationship i would categorize them as as one security thing to watch for and one one uh, commercial trade related thing to watch for so on the security side um something that's really um you know been been in the in the press and, and important to watch for is the diplomatic offensive that, that China has been on with the South Pacific island nations, um, and we saw it um, most, um, you know, prominently come to the fore in April when, when China signed a, uh, a security uh, agreement with the Solomon Islands. Uh, and so this is quite significant because uh, when you look on a map where the Solomon Islands is, and you know, also the other South Pacific islands, um, they're very strate- strategically located you know to, to Australia's Northeast and also you know f- form a potential barrier um, up past the you know the eastern side of Indonesia and, and Papua New Guinea um, so I think this is important because when you read the draft um, of of the security agreement it gives China and the Ch- Chinese Navy for example the um, you know the ability to refuel and and to um, to make stoppages in in um, in, in the Solomon Islands, so it's something that that should be monitored. And I think the motivation for the Chinese government here, for for Beijing, is is clearly um, their sense that um, Australia and the US are perhaps, um, you know, do, doing more with, with their own military um, alliances um, and cooperations around um, around institutions like you know the Quad, the, quadri- the quadrilateral dialogue, um, and also AUKUS the the submarine nuclear submarine initiative that was announced um, last year and in includes Australia, the UK, and the US. Um, so I think it's um, it's kind of um, you know clear that, that China's retaliating and and um, you know pu- pushing out beyond the first island chain there um, to to try and you know have, have more of a strategic um, you know positioning uh, on the commercial and trade side. Uh, one interesting area to, to keep an eye on, I think, is uh, obviously the industry of iron ore because iron ore is such an important um, industry for Australia. It accounts for about 25% of, of the country's total exports. Um, and clearly, um, you know, given, given the shape of trade relations between Australia and China right now, it's been no secret that, that Beijing wishes to reduce its, its iron ore dependency on, on Australia over the medium term. Uh, and, and is one reason why they're you know, working on a big iron ore project development in, in the country of Guinea in Western Africa um, to, to try and, over the medium term, potentially back out iron ore purchases or, or some percentage of iron ore purchases from Australia. But I think one um, development that, that caught my eye recently was uh, China announced that they're setting up a new entity um, called the China Mineral Resources Group, um, which is intended to be a a cooperative buyer for uh, China's steel industry um, to really, you know, negotiate as one and have more purchasing power um, vis-a-vis the, uh, the iron ore suppliers, which, which themselves are a very consolidated industry. Um, and so th- this is something that, that should be monitored as well, because it, it potentially over time might give China more, more power around, around lower prices. And it, it'll be interesting to see how the big Iron ore producers um, respond to this um, if they if they feel that they're being um, you know bullied into s- supplying iron ore at a, at a price that's unfavorable or, or non market related. Uh, but they're really the, the two aspects to, to monitor in the in the China Australia relationship from my perspective.
0: Richard, does being located in Singapore change your perspective in any way?
1: Yeah, th- thanks, Julia. That's a great question because one of the primary reasons that I um, you know, chose to relocate to Singapore four years ago is is because, um, you know, I, I could really see, and I, I think many people would agree with me that um, the, the Indo-Pacific, the Asia-Pacific region um, is really um, expected to be ground zero for geopolitics um, in the coming years. And, you know, we're seeing that with, um, you know, the uncertainty around Taiwan, you know, the tensions in the South China Sea around China's nine dash line, um, you know this this great power competition between the U.S. and China is is really expected uh, to primarily play out, you know, in in this part of the world. And so, being based here gives me a time zone advantage, um, gives me the ability to kind of digest events as they happen. Uh, but it also enables me to, um, you know, mix and and meet with some of the movers and shakers um, in in geopolitics and and diplomacy. Um, so just to, to give you a little bit of insight about my role, um, you know, what, one of the areas that I, I like to kind of tap into here is, is the diplomatic community. And I'm very fortunate that in Singapore, there's obviously a very big um, you know, embassy, um, uh, you know, collection of embassies from countries all around the world have diplomatic representation here. And, um, you know, I, I often try and meet with representatives as much as I can. And sometimes I'm fortunate enough to even meet with the ambassadors. Um, of some of the countries, and that really helps me to, you know, get more of a flavour for the geopolitics, rather than, you know, just, you know, purely see what's happening in, in the news, or, you know, getting, getting, um, you know, takes on it from the corporate world. Um, getting it from the diplomatic uh, community as well is is very insightful. So I think being based in Singapore is is a good advantage um, for a geopolitical strategist.
0: Coming back to the shift in great world powers, how do you tend to think about them in terms of investment themes at Newton? At Newton,
1: we think about geopolitics or what we term great power competition um, in terms of five sub-themes or key pillars. And the reason we try and break it down um, in a more structured way is because geopolitics does have a tendency to, to come across as quite nebulous and sometimes it's difficult to see the wood for the trees because there's so much news flow occurring. So we like to think that our framework offers a way um, to separate what's important from from what's just noise, uh, and to be able to then um, make analytical decisions um, on the basis of of what we're what we're learning. So we our five sub sub-themes, If you'll um, indulge me for a second to just elaborate on on those. Um, are um, the trade war, um, the tech war, the finance war, resource competition, and security competition. So they're the five five sub-areas of geopolitics. So the, the first one, the trade war, that's thinking about how supply chains are adapting um, as a result of the, the changing pattern of trade. And um, so since 2018, we've clearly seen um, Trade become more politicized with, with tariffs and trade wars and uh, more values-based um, notions attached to trade. And so we're, we're clearly seeing and likely to see in the coming years an adaptation of, of supply chains and, and where investment is taking place. Um, so that, that kind of covers off the trade war. On the tech war, this is really about a kind of decoupling of, um, of tech between the great powers, between the U.S. and China, but also countries within their spheres, and we're seeing this right now. Um, you know, clearly play out in the semiconductor industry, where the US, you know, is, is trying to prevent high-end semiconductors get, getting to China, um, and and China uh, really sensing that it's being contained and needing to build up its own um, domestic semiconductor industry. So we're likely to see these tech wars um, continue for for many many years because. At the end of the day, tech and innovation is what drives productivity, and that's what drives economic growth, and and that's what's likely to be, you know, the, the key growth driver uh, in in the coming years. Um, so the the third pillar is the finance war. This is this is about how, um, you know, that the U.S. has started to weaponize the dollar and the international Western payment system SWIFT um, in in the wake of the Russia Ukraine crisis, um, and we're seeing um, some of these autocratic countries, um, really stand up and take notice and, and think about how they want to potentially, um, protect their own financial systems or international payment systems, uh, fr- from being the next target. So I think we're likely to see, you know, more finance decoupling. So that, that's the finance war. Um, and then the, the, the two remaining ones, resource competition. This is about how, um, resources or, you know, key elements and metals are gonna be very strategic um, for future industries. Uh, When you think about the future industries like artificial intelligence or electric vehicles, you know, you clearly need high-end semiconductors, which, um, and you you need materials like rare earths, uh, you need materials like lithium and cobalt. And so being able to control and have access um, to these resources is, is setting up for more competition. So that's the fourth leg. And then the final one, security competition, um, which I tend to think of as just you know, pure, um, good old fashioned military um, spheres of influence, you know, like we're seeing right now in, in the Ukraine, like we're seeing around um, the South China Sea. Uh, this is about you know, an inc- converting into an increase in defense spending. Um, so all of these um, sub themes of geopolitics you know, can be converted into takeaways that are relevant for investing. I think that's the key point to highlight.
0: What are the opportunities that each of these pillars present to investors?
1: Clearly, um, you know, the, the way that the tech war is is shaping up, um, we, we've seen the US Senate pass, um, pass the CHIPS Act, which, you know, will mean that um, over $50 billion of uh, domestic funding and subsidies will be available for um semiconductor companies that are prepared to invest in the United States you know so clearly this is a very big um you know big sum of sum of funds that is available for companies so i think um that there'll be beneficiaries that that can tap into that uh, that are prepared to um you know put put more of their r&d innovation and production in the us um, it, uh, just you know other other areas would be within security competition Clearly, much higher levels of defence spending are, are coming through now after Russia Ukraine. Um, you know, we've seen NATO members, um, you know, committed to spending two percent of GDP. We've seen Germany. Um, I think Germany was at about 1.4 percent before the uh, Ukraine invasion. So that just gives a sense of, you know, that is a, equates to around a 50 percent increase um, in their defence spending. Plus, they've set up. A dedicated 100 billion euro defence fund uh, to, to enable an accelerated catch-up. So th- th- these sums of money are, um, you know, enormous, and will find their way eventually um, into the pockets of the US uh, as, and, well, primarily the European defence establishment, uh, but but also, I think, more internationally, uh, you know, the US defence sector that that has some of the best technology. Um, and and Australia, for its part, I was just reading that, you know, the latest. Uh, most recent defense spending budget uh, for, for, the, for 2022, 2023 um, equates to a, about a 7% increase uh, year on year. So, you know, Australia not standing still either in terms of defense spending, you know, which goes back to the, the point that I was talking about earlier with, you know, I think the Solomon Islands and AUKUS and, and some of these other um, military initiatives that are intended to, to kind of counter China. Um, so, that, so there are a few examples for you.
0: How do you make sure you're keeping on top of other geopolitical risks that might spark at any time?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because um, it's, it's very difficult, or almost impossible, I'd say, to predict specific geopolitical events um, and, and their timing. It's, it's much easier to work with frameworks, like I described, uh, to monitor geopolitical themes, um, things like trade disputes and tech wars that are kind of smoother but you know, inexorable trends that are happening. Um, predicting the next events very difficult um, but you know uh, geopolitical strategists have have certain um, tools that, that they can kind of deploy um, I like to look at history I think that's very important to look at how the broader brushstrokes of history are, are kind of um, having parallels with things that are happening today you know one example of that um, that I'd like to point to is is how the great powers um, throughout history going back over around 200 years, have always come unstuck in Afghanistan. It happened with the British Empire in the 19th century, happened with the Soviet Union in the 20th century, and it's happened with the United States in the 21st century, um, that, you know, uh, eventually um, countries of these big powers have have had to kind of realize that Afghanistan was becoming a a drain. They were not making any strategic progress and withdraw. And and I think a lot can be, um, you know, a lot can be pinned on the US withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. Um, in terms of um, the geopolitics of 2022, I think it emboldened Vladimir Putin's um, consideration that to invade Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, to, to answer your point, I think history is is very useful to, to refer to. Um, you know, other things, you know, monitoring domestic politics, foreign policy is is very often. A kind of an extension of what's happening in domestic politics in the U.S. We've got midterm elections coming up, something that um, uh, it is likely to lead to, you know, increased, um, you know, anti-China rhetoric because that's something that appeals to parties on both sides of the aisle. Um, so I think we we should also be, you know, sensitive to um, to, to domestic political issues, and, and there's no different in China where they have uh, the 20th Party Congress coming up, which is a major you know, leadership um, uh, summit uh, for the Communist Party happening um, towards the end of this year. And that's also um, a, a very sensitive time in which you know f- foreign policy could be more volatile around that. Um, and, and then in, in addition also building in conventional macro analysis, I think um, geopolitics goes very nicely hand in hand with conventional macroeconomics. Um, so right now, for example, you're looking uh, um, at the emerging market landscape, and and a lot of these countries have been um, very much affected by COVID and and bearing the scars of the COVID pandemic. Um, their economies are not recovering um, particularly quickly, and at the same time, they're being hit with very high inflation levels uh, for food and energy. Um, we're seeing um, what appears to look like somewhat of a default wave. Um, moving through the uh, emerging markets. You know, it we, we started with Sri Lanka uh, recently as the kind of poster child, but, you know, there's a lot of other countries that are at high risk. Um, I think the IMF or the World Bank have highlighted around 50 other countries um, that are frontier and emerging countries that could uh, could be facing debt, debt distress. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on because um, if some of these countries start to um, – start to default or even you know even worse still become failed states that will obviously have big implications for regional geopolitics as well Um, so so that's another another aspect of of how a geopolitical strategist um, kind of deploys tools to think about think about the world
0: well richard you've got a lot to keep you busy
1: (laughs) that's correct i've got a lot to keep me on my toes and a lot to keep me occupied with
0: thanks so much for your insight today richard thanks julia You've been listening to Richard Bullock from Newton Investment Management.